0: Wrestling fans, welcome to the December edition of Charting the Territories. My name is Al Goetz, and also with me this month, as he is every damn month, I can't get rid of the guy, no matter how hard I
1: try, welcome, John Boucher. Welcome. Hello, hello, Al. Happy December. Al, happy, happy December, to December, everybody. I have, my, I have a mug of, of eggnog here that I prepared. Uh, wow. I have some... Some seltzer ready to go to keep myself hydrated and and you know moist in the face. Uh, but this month I additionally set myself up with a uh, little mug of eggnog with a cinnamon stick in it. So if I'm you hear me sipping, I'm sipping on my nog, baby. Whatever it takes to keep you moist in the face, John, I'm
0: all for that.
1: <laughs> all right. Also, if I have to run to the restroom at any point. It's because of the eggnog. It's
0: Everything is blamed on the eggnog, I think, on this <laughs> time here. But this month, we're going to look at the fourth quarter of 1973 and the fourth quarter of 1965 in the Leroy McGurk territory. Now, in 1973, one wrestler returns to action after a car accident that also injured two other grapplers. One of the bigger heel turns in the history of the territory up to that point in time takes place. A local promoter switches allegiances briefly. Lots of interesting newcomers, including a future WWWF World Heavyweight Champion and a future member of the Midnight Express, and the quarter ends with one of the biggest stars in the history of the territory leaving for a long absence. In 1965, in the fourth quarter, Don Fargo returns to the area under a different name. Then he changes it back then he nails some little shoes to the ceiling, and then he leaves the territory because the promoters and some of the wrestlers didn't like his antics. And all that was in a span of four weeks. Don Fargo, ladies and gentlemen. And we also have a major title change. Or do we? We don't. Unless we do. Maybe. We'll talk about that, and we'll also talk about the latest episode of Wrestling History Mysteries, where I I unmasked Mr. Zabo and revealed his identity publicly for the first time in recorded wrestling history. In addition, we're going to have a special guest joining us, and we're going to chart a territory that we have yet to look at on the blog or on the podcast. It's the first in a series of uncharted territories. And it's going to require us to go west, John, so I hope you are packed for our journey. All packed, baby. All that, plus shit, John bought me off eBay this month, I learned, and lots more. But we're going to start it off with, now, John, you've seen When Harry Met Sally, right?
1: I I have, yes.
0: Well, I I think we've got a love story for the ages that will top that, (laughs) and this is When Al Met John. (laughs) so listeners john and i have hosted this podcast together for a year and a half now we've known each Mm -hmm. other through twitter for a little bit longer than that but not much longer but for the first time ever just a few weeks ago john and i met in person for the first time ever i was up in new york visiting some family and uh john and i made some plans to go out and have dinner uh, and have a drink, and then uh, John's wife joined us as well, and we had a grand old time. So, John, was I what you, was I what you expected?
1: Yes, all that, all that, and more. There was a definite "I'll ha- I'll have what he's having" moment you know, during our, <laughs> during our dinner, much to the chagrin of all the other diners. And the place we went to, Saks Place in Queens, they're not a sponsor, just giving a plug there. They've been around since uh, like the late '80s, and it's my favorite. Italian place in the neighborhood. And what really sold me was they have this little plaque, you know, that has like a little story about their family, the, their family history, the Sacramento family. And it mentions that they're from Abruzzi, Italy, which, as most wrestling fans know, is the home of Bruno Sammartino, or at least where he was, you know, billed from being. So as soon as I read that, I was like, this is going to be my, my restaurant. You know, Abruzzi, Italy, baby. So
0: Sacramento, isn't that Johnny Sack from The Sopranos? Wasn't he Johnny Sacramano? I
1: think, I
0: think they're Sacramoni. They're, they're
1: Sacramoni, mean, okay. At the end. Right. Probably, you know, Abruzzi, Abruzzo, Sacramoni, Sacramento, who knows? A
0: slight difference. But yeah, so John and I uh, got to meet in person, which was really, honestly, it was really cool. I'm not going to lie. Uh, it was oh, really Nice to meet up with this guy who who I've only talked to uh, digitally and over the phone and on Skype for so long. But to actually get to share uh, a drink with him and break bread with him was really, really nice. So uh, hopefully we will do it again next time I'm in New York. Or if you ever find yourself down in Atlanta or we could meet somewhere or we could meet at the Cauliflower Alley Club convention yeah. in vegas or something similar
1: i was very excited for you to meet my wife as well so i could each of you could be reassured that the other one was a real person like i wasn't <laughs> lying to my wife about a fake podcast that i have but i actually just sit in the yeah living room myself for an out and
0: Just to convince her it wasn't a long con where you were just, you know, making this up. You were catfishing in some weird, crazy (laughs) story. No, I am real. Your wife is real. And so are you. All real, baby. And Christmas is real. And as a matter of fact, not only are we doing a live unboxing for Shit John Bought Me Off eBay, each of us are going to do a live unboxing of Christmas presents that we got for one another. So I'm going to go first, John, you sent me a package that contained both the eBay item or items and your Christmas gift. So which which is which? One of them was in a cardboard box. Which one is that?
1: That is the that is the shit I bought you off eBay.
0: Okay, so I'm I'm going to start with that. Yeah, I got to All right, we are going to open this up. I already opened it. I just, you know, didn't look inside, but this is oh, it is a uh a forty-five record yep. uh, wrestling superstars presents an interview with the Grand Wizard. Yeah, I'm baby. I'm hoping, John, this is the professional wrestling manager and not David Dukes.
1: Yes, no, it is it is it is Ernie Roth, not David Dukes, or,
0: or or Dick Murdoch. <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the wrestling Hopefully manager known as the Grand Wizard. Yes. Uh, John, I actually have a record player, thankfully. Oh, this yeah. isn't a 45. It actually says it's the size of, you know, a 45 record, but it says on it, it is 33 and one third RPMs. Interesting.
1: Oh, you have a few extra minutes on there. Yeah. Well,
0: a few <laughs> extra minutes of Ernie Roth is uh, wonderful. So that is what John yeah. bought me off eBay. And now we're going to look and see what John got me for Christmas. So there are two items here. The first one is... So what do you call this thing? Is it a cell? It's like a little picture, um, but it's in a cardboard container that says Kodakron, that's from Kodak. So what is, what is that called?
2: I
1: think it's the transparency, right? Is it just a transparency? The like transparency? transparency? Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah.
0: So, and it's, I got to hold it up to the light to see what it is, but it's a picture of a wrestling match.
1: Uh, I who Who is this of? That's a good question. I'm trying to remember which, what I what okay. I threw in so there. It's from I a bunch. it was
0: there's a, a name and address on the back of someone named oh. uh Camensack in Detroit, Michigan. Is it is it the sheik? Oh yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the Sheik in there. Yes, yeah, that is the chic.
0: Okay, yeah, definitely I can definitely tell that it's the chic. I can't really tell I'm holding this up to the light. I'll post a picture of this on Twitter, but I, I I'm not good at describing these things, but it's a small ah. little um transparency of a photograph taken and it's on a Kodak Film. Um, but I'll post a picture of it and hopefully we can blow it up. But it's the Sheik in the ring against somebody. And the other item, I've already seen it, I got to tell you, this is probably the greatest Christmas present I've ever received in my life. Now, as a caveat, I am Jewish, so I don't receive many Christmas presents. I do receive some, but this might be the greatest Christmas present I have ever received. <laughs> This is a domino set of mm-hmm. Titanus and El Ring, the Argentinian mm-hmm. wrestling promotion started by Martin Kardagian, uh in the, mm-hmm. he started in the 60s, right? I think so, yeah. Uh, but it, it uh, was, mo- its peak years were in the early 70s. I love Titanus and El Ring, La Momia, The Mummy. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so these are, so it's a domino set. It's not like the, the hard, thicker plastic dominoes. These are made out of cardstock, but they have pictures. There's La Momia. There's that weird fish monster looking guy. Uh, <laughs> there's, I think that's D'Artagnan. I think that's Martin Cardassian. There's some sort of another sea creature. Uh, <laughs> there's a bear. No, he's a He's a bear or a man or a oh. mentor or a minotaur or something like that. But these are really cool. So these are dom. This is a set of dominoes with uh, the images instead of numbers, you know, a uh, set of number dots on each domino square. It's a picture of one of the stars of Titanus NL ring, the great yeah, Argentinian good. product. Uh, and this is officially licensed. It's copyright Martin Cardagian on the back.
1: No bootlegs, baby. Yeah, no about.
0: bootlegs. All natural, baby. This is awesome. <laughs> Seriously, this is the coolest thing ever. I will post a picture of it on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, now, now I feel pictures. now I feel really bad. I, I almost don't want you to open up what I sent you.
1: <laughs> but go ahead and okay. do it anyway. I'm, I'm, okay. Shaking it and shaking it and giving it the shake here. Let's see. Okay. Okay. I didn't. Uh, I didn't gimmick the box here. So, gotta bear with me. Okay. All right. get that and I got a little. Another box inside here. Oh, ripping! It's a series of Russian nesting boxes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh wow! What you got? What I got? It's like a, like a, what is it? It's like a. So they're like, are they? Are they they like trading cards or what are they? Yeah, they're
0: trading cards. I think they are un unofficial, unlicensed Uh, bootleg, as it
1: were. Bootleg baby. But who you got? The best JYD, Mr. Olympia. Oh, Siegfried Stunke. I can play six degrees of Siegfried Stunkey. Oh, Bob Roop. Notice the author of Bob Roop. Ken Mantel. Wow. Mike George. These are like the stars of the tri state here, baby. This is great. Who's <laughs> who? Knew? Yes. Buck Robley? Okay. Oh Leroy. <laughs> and Leroy's yep. caption is I've got big big plans for you. <laughs> <laughs> But and the cards, do, Leroy. uh,
0: not Leroy's, but the wrestler share. cards, have some little icons and numbers on the bottom. I think they're supposed to be like a score of different oh, yeah So, yeah. Uh, like, what like, what are the like icons? Probably,
1: there's a, a trophy, a heart, a muscle, a star, and a drop of blood.
0: So this is probably like some maybe this is some sort of role playing dice based game where they have different mm. ratings of you know championships held blood lost oh. how much heart they have that sort of thing yeah. um but the plamors the seller on eBay had hundreds of these and they were, uh, ne- they were grouped into different territories, but he didn't have the name of the territory. It would just say Territory A or Territory B or Territory C. So it took some time on my part to figure out which one was the McGurk Territory. <laughs> I think it ended up being Territory I, but I just went and bought as many of those as I could. I think you've got one of Watts and Boyd Pierce, right?
1: I do have the last one, yeah. <laughs> this is in the caption. And now here's the cowboy. <laughs> is Boyd wearing a glorious suit? It's I was I, sadly no. He's just wearing like a plain blue suit. Maybe they just couldn't reproduce it in, uh, you know, in they the didn't color have enough colors like,
0: all, all, all. <laughs> at yeah, the print Yeah, it would
1: have been shop. like a Dewey Fenton of a print job. <laughs> but God, there you go. Awesome.
0: So I can I can play dominoes and you can play uh, some sort of wrestling card game with the best yeah, of Leroy that. McGurk's wrestling territory. So there you go. Merry Christmas to you, John.
1: Thank you. These are so cool. I'm going to take these to bed and sleep at them on my nightstand. Yeah. Me and Mr.
0: Olympia. Huh. There you go. And in, in John in bed with Mr. Olympia is the heartwarming <laughs> photograph everybody wants to see.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, ooh, ooh.
0: <laughs> well, we know who was under the mask of Mr. Olympia. That, of course, was Jerry Stubbs. And now we know who was under the mask of Mr. Zabo. Because the latest episode of Wrestling History Mysteries, which was released earlier this month, uh, after a four month long saga and and in real life it actually took me the better part of a year yeah. we have identified the identity of Mr. Zabo well beyond any reasonable doubt I'm not going to give any spoilers in case our listeners haven't listened to it yet but he's a pretty well-known star who main evented in several territories over the years and he had faced Luthez many many times before the two matches he had with him in 1963 as Mr. Zabo and if you don't want to listen to all four episodes of the podcast, I also have a full transcript on the blog at chartingtheterritories.com. And interspersed with the transcript are various photographs, clippings, and other documents and supporting evidence of the research that we did to determine the identity of Mr. Zabo and to solve a wrestling history mystery.
1: Great episodes. I see if, if you listen to one episode, listen to this one. There's a lot of good, good. Good stuff in this one. Yeah, uh,
0: and I think really also, sold, and to set the, the table, August. you need to listen to the other parts as well. But uh, you know, it, you, it it really came to a a great little conclusion. And the episode within the first thirty seconds of listening to part four of the Curious Case of Mister Zabo, you'll know who it is. I don't tease it out. I don't delay it. I don't <laughs> swerve you. You'll know early on, uh, directly from the mouth of Cowboy Bill Watts, who Mister Zabo was. Uh, so, Cowboy Bill Watts uh, helped us solve this mystery, as did Frankie Kane. Uh, unfortunately, we do seem to be losing wrestlers at a uh, pretty decent clip over the last year. Uh, uh, within the last few weeks, we lost Blackjack Lanza. And from a more recent era, and someone I actually knew personally, uh, Jimmy Rave passed away recently as well. So, John, um, what are your memories of Blackjack Lanza?
1: Lanza. The- I you know, I had read uh, read about seeing photos of, you know, the blackjacks and the back issues of the magazines when I was when I was a little kid, you know. And it was I was always fascinating to me to find these uh, these teams that were former WWF, WWF tag team champions. It always seemed like the belts changed hands way more often than the World Championship. So I would try and piece together, you know, the title lineage from what I could find in the magazines. And I always thought they looked super cool with the black gloves and the hats and the whole, whole, whole deal, you know. And, you know, I remember Blackjack Mulligan on TV with the glove and they had given him the red X, you know, and he gave people the claw, you know, assuming he, he was crushing their faces and they were bleeding to death on TV. So it's automatically cool in my book. But I'd never seen Lanza like, in action, so to speak, until I think it was 86 when he was a guest on TNT, Tuesday Night Titan. Um, after he became a road agent, but they, you know, occasionally on TNT, they would play excerpts from old matches from their tape library. And they played an excerpt of a Blackjack Lonza versus Lee Wong match from Madison Square Garden from 1973, which was so cool to see in 1986 because seeing MSG footage from 1973, you just never even see that often, if at all. Um, Except on these shows like TNT that were unbearable to watch a lot of the time, uh, but worth it for footage like this. Um, they also showed, which was kind of bizarre, uh, in 1986, AWA footage of Lanza turning on Bobby Heenan, um, which you didn't really see in 86. Uh, but that was my first time seeing him actually in the ring wrestling, so that that was very cool. Um yeah, and then I don't know much about him personally. And he's a guy who didn't give a ton of interviews after he left the business, so I don't know a lot about his his personal life. But from he's one of those guys across the board. It seems like a great mentor to to many a wrestler. You know, at least Steve Austin, at least, least of which um, it's really interesting. Like how over he was in the late '60s, Lanza that Vince Senior wanted to replicate the success that Heenan he had in the Midwest and that's where Bob Wyndham became Blackjack Mulligan for Vince in the early I think 71 uh it was basically his his attempt at cashing in on the on the blackjack the blackjack Lanza thing so and he couldn't get Mulligan he up, couldn't
0: get Lanza so he made his own blackjack and they eventually became yeah, a tag yeah. team
1: yeah and and when Mulligan left after his Pred- Pedro program he went back to the Midwest and they teamed and the rest is history but yeah he'll do this and you I think uh knew uh, Jimmy personally, correct? Yeah, I, I
0: knew Jimmy well. Uh, we crossed paths many times when I was a, a wrestling manager in the Indies here in the Southeast and in Georgia. He originally started out as the uh, undersized white meat baby face that the heels would continually, you know, beat the beat the crap out of it. But he would, you know, never give up, never back down. But he really came into his own when he started working as a heel, in particular, his run with Ring of Honor. And this is one of those things that's hard to do when you have a quote unquote smart crowd like Ring of Honor. You can't do the typical heel stuff. And it's, it's often hard to get people to truly hate you. Sometimes they'll play along like it's part of the act. But Jimmy really understood how to get that type of fan to dislike him. Uh, in, in many ways, it was an extension of what Carino had done in ECW where he would, you know, uh, g- grab the chair, but instead of hitting his opponent with it, he'd set it down and then sit down in it while putting his opponent in a headlock. Uh, and <laughs> what Jimmy did was, was in many ways, uh, an extension and evolution from that, um, And in fact, when my friends Scott Hensley and Ace Rockwell started the Scenic City Invitational Tournament in 2015 in Chattanooga, the idea was to have a tournament focused on the best independent wrestlers in the Southeast with a smattering of talent from outside as well. And Jimmy Rave was the no-brainer pick to be the first winner of that tournament. That was the whole idea. And the following year... When Matt Riddle came in for the tournament, he was brought in specifically so that we could book Matt Riddle versus Jimmy Rave. This was a the established veteran independent star against, at that point in time, the indie darling that was on the rise. And so we literally uh, put that together as a dream match of sorts. Wow. Um. Sadly, uh, I think most of our listeners know Jimmy uh, battled addiction on and off for uh, – the last several years of his life. Uh, My friendship with Jimmy ended uh, a couple years ago and uh, it didn't end on good terms. Uh, I like to think that it wasn't Jimmy. It was quote unquote addiction that uh, I was, you know, having the falling out with. And uh, sadly, Jimmy passed away Uh, recently. I just want to say to our listeners, if it's drug addiction, if it's, you know, substance abuse, if it's domestic abuse, if it's just general mental health issues, there are so many resources out there. Uh, and, and don't feel like you're weak for seeking help. In fact, it's literally the opposite. You're showing strength by seeking to right wrongs and by seeking help. And I really truly hope that people who are struggling with anything uh, really look uh, to try and heal themselves, fix themselves, and and, and change their lives. Um, But rest in peace to James Guffey, a.k.a. Jimmy Rave, and Blackjack Lanza. Uh, Moving on to 1973, the fourth quarter of 1973, October, November, and December. The big news was a shocking heel turn. Skandor Akbar, who had been a babyface in this territory dating back to 1967, turned heel on his longtime ally and frequent tag team partner, Danny Hodge. It happened during a tag match on TV where Hodge accidentally hit Akbar and the Futural General lost it, stomping and hammering Danny until the champion was out cold. This led to a series of matches around the Horn, with several towns having a two-match series between the two. You can see all of the known house show matches between them, with results were available in our Anatomy of a Feud section when we cover the fourth quarter of 1973 on the blog at chartingtheterritories.com. Now, as we get into December, Akbar starts winning most of the matches, which is unusual because usually the babyface wins feuds in the end. But in this case, Akbar seems to be winning the blow-off matches between the two. And furthermore, on December 19th in Jackson, Mississippi, Hodge loses the NWA World Junior Heavyweight title to fellow babyface Ken Mantell. Hodge finished out that week then took a couple of weeks off before going to Florida, and he wouldn't return to the McGurk territory for well over a year. So this leads me to wonder, trying Mm. to analyze how things went, I wonder whether there's a chicken or an egg in this scenario, whether the office knew Hodge was leaving and thus decided to turn Akbar heel and use Hodge to put over Akbar on the way out, or if at some point during the course of the feud, That's when Hodge gave his notice. And if that's the case, if it had something to do with the feud. So those are the types of things that I spend way too much time thinking about. At this point, that's questions we'll never get answered. But people, you know, talk about, you know, booking when they say who decides who wins. I'm more curious about how this whole played out, particularly the timetable of when The office knew Hodge was leaving, and if that had any effect on how this storyline played out. So, John, Mm. do you have any thoughts on that?
1: I don't. I was going to ask you for your thought another question. Uh, A guy in Hodge's position in the territory in 1973, from your experience, how much notice would a guy like that typically give? if he was planning on leaving.
0: Well, the other thing be... to think about is that according to both Hodge and Bill Watts, Hodge owned a small piece of the territory. I don't mm. know for sure if he still owned it in late 1973, but at least ah. in 71, he owned, I forget if it was either five or 10%. I want to say it was five, but Leroy, hmm. I think had 51. And then it was a combination of Fritz, Vern. Watts, Hodge, and maybe Geigel hmm. uh, all had small pieces of it. So I without knowing if Hodge was still, you know, an owner in 73, it's really hard to say. Because if he was an owner, he probably had to give a lot of notice. But I would even think, given that he had been there since 1959, and aside from a couple of excursions of several months and maybe even close to a year, this was going to be the longest he'd be gone. Now, granted he might not have known when he first decided to leave for Florida that he would be away for that long. So that's the other thing that without knowing that it's hard to say, for example, if he knew he was going for a year, he'd probably give them more notice than if it was just a traditional finishing mm -hmm. up and he'll probably be back in a few months.
1: Yeah. And you would like, you would like, to think and and that a guy like Hodge would have enough confidence in his place in the territory as a whole where he could he he would realize that he's not hurt by losing on his way out uh, you know, doesn't doesn't sully his reputation in in the territory i think it, it's anything it makes when he comes back he's automatically programmed to something that's already in the main events when he's back whether it's 6 months whether it's a year or whatever um, but you know, you don't know. It's hard to 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 know where uh, these guys' heads are,
0: right? Now, I'm I'm not time. saying that I think Hodge might have left because he was asked to put over Akbar. I'm just thinking perhaps something about the feud. Given that he had you know teamed with Akbar for so long, perhaps maybe that he just didn't like that. But you no, know, I certainly agree with you. I don't uh, think I don't think okay. he Good. would have said because also the other thing is it seems that he's winning. Uh, the the first couple of towns in the cycle where they complete the yep. the the two the two show feud, Hodge is winning the blow off in those, but then hmm. as the feud goes to other towns, that's when Akbar starts winning. So that is what leads me to believe that Hodge's notice might have came in during the feud. Whether it was as a result of the feud or not, who knows? But these are again these are questions about to most people minutia uh, that. We'll never get answered, but to people like you and I, we obsess over little things like uh, that.
1: Do we ever.
0: But there's more to the territory than just Danny Hodge and Skandar Akbar. In fact, looking at the roster, the highest rated wrestler using our spot rating metric is Bob Sweetan. Now, Bob had been out of action for almost three months. Having been in a car accident that also injured Duke Myers and George Holtz. Sweet Tan broke both of his either legs or feet, depending on, oh, depending on where you read it. It's either he broke both his legs or both of his feet. But given that he was only out for three months, I think feet is the more accurate, mm. uh, is the more likely scenario. But Duke Myers mm. broke, broke his legs and was out of action for about a year. And George Holtz never wrestled on a regular basis again. Hultz had played college football for the Southern Mississippi Golden Eagles, graduating in 1962. John, who is the most oh. famous football player to come out of Southern Mississippi?
1: I think he's telling me. I don't know. I don't know my college football. Can I get can I get a caller? Can I call John McAdam? <laughs> can I have John McAdam be my lifeline?
0: Well, there Can were I a few. call him
1: Zellner? Or Zellner. Let me call Zellner. You call Zellner.
0: He might know. Uh, let's he see. He might know. Uh, might there's know. A, well, there's a few punters. Ray Guy uh, played Ray there, Guy. but I, I believe that Brett Favre. Yes, Brett Favre is who I was oh. thinking of. Ah. Brett Favre, one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, also played for the Southern Mississippi Golden Eagles, although well after George Holtz was there. Now, going back to Sweetan, it's worth noting that he is not wrestling as often as most of the other full timers. And this is where our bookings per week stat that I have listed uh, on the blog comes into play. But we can see that Sweetan is wrestling uh, between two and three times per week, while the rest of the regulars are wrestling four or five, even more times a week out of all the house show records we have it looks like Sweet Tan is mostly working in the Louisiana towns that Grizzly Smith is booking, and he's not working in Oklahoma, Arkansas, the, the northern wing of the territory. So perhaps he was being eased back into action slowly after recovering from the accident. But another thing about this it's is that it's indicative with one of the issues with listing the wrestlers in order just by the spot rating. In the case of Sweet Tan, not only is he not wrestling as frequently as the rest of the top stars, but he's also only here for the last three weeks of the quarter, whereas many of the other wrestlers were there for the whole three-month period. So with that in mind, I'm going to change things up next month. Starting in January, I'm going to add some rankings that will take into account not only their week-to-week spot rating, but how many weeks they were in the territory during the quarter. Additionally, While currently we're showing the frequent opponents and frequent partners and how they change from week to week. And while I think that has value, it makes these charts really unwieldy and difficult to read. So I'm going to be changing that as well. And I'm really going to be simplifying things and and bring it back down to something very simple and basic and not trying to overstat everybody. So we will be debuting that in January. And I'm i am honestly, I'm pretty excited. I spent a lot of time uh, testing this new methodology that will measure uh, feuds and their length. And I'm really, really excited about the output. So we'll be sharing that with you in January. As for the rest of the roster, the main eventers, uh, all of whom have a spot rating of a 0.80 or more, are Babyface's Dr. X, Danny Hodge, Dewey Robertson, Ken Mantell, and Grizzly Smith, and on the heel side, Tarzan Baxter, Tank Morgan, Skandor Akbar, and Kim Duck, who is the future Tiger Chung Lee. Now, the upper mid-carders, who have a spot rating between .60 and .80, are Babyface's Klondike Bill and Luke Brown, and heels Stan Kowalski, the masked team of Mephisto and Dante, Alex Perez. Jerry Miller, El Gran Tapia, and Rip Tyler. So, John, let's talk about this version of Mephisto and Dante, because there were many over the years. But, John, who was this version of Mephisto and
2: Dante?
1: Here we have a a future Midnight Express member and a former intern, correct? We have uh, Joe Turner. Yeah. And uh, Dennis Convey. And
0: they are uh, actual brothers-in-law. Huh. So the two masked wrestlers are a brother tag team. Meanwhile, there are two other tag teams in the territory that are billed as brother teams, but they are actually not brothers. So we have two teams made up of fake brothers, and one of them even had a fake ma with them. Oh, yeah. So the first team, we mentioned Rip Tyler in the upper mid Carter section. A little further down the cards is Randy Tyler. Now, both had gone to Washington State over the summer to wrestle for Dean Silverstone's new promotion when it first started, but they both left after just a few weeks and ended up here. And Rip ends up as Booker here, and we'll see proof of that when we look at his run in 1974. But the other brother team is Donnie and Ronnie Bass, and they're accompanied by
1: Ma Bass. The Bass clan is, so, is a little complicated you know, you got you have the patriarch. You got the Sam Bass, You got Don and Ron. Who we're talking about here. Uh, Don Bass is interesting because his real name is Donald Welch, but he's not related to the Welches. Um, I mean, he's li- related to the Welches, just not the the wrestling Welches, the Fullers. Uh, and you have Ma Bass, who wrestled with Mae Weston from the late '30s and continued wrestling <laughs> until basically right around the period we're covering now. Uh it's like fifty years old here, still getting in the ring. And then they had Roy Bass in Kentucky, like seventy one seventy two. Uh and then there's Percy and Woodrow in Alabama, right? Montgomery, Alabama. Correct. And Woodrow also was, by Sam. Woodrow was Jim White. Percy Bass was Jimmy Hyde, right?
0: I think so. And I think at one point very, very I think at one point, no-class Bobby Bass was a Bass brother as well.
1: Yes. Yep, yep, yep. And Dutch, Dutch Mantel was uh, Dutch Bass. Yes.
0: Uh, so uh, Ron Bass and Dutch Mantel were wrestling in Missouri, I think, as the outlaws. They left there and go to Gulf Coast, and they, they're they back to building themselves as the Bass brothers. So it's Ron Bass <laughs> and Dutch Bass. And also... Junior Bass. Yeah,
1: Junior Bass. And at oh, some point, was there was a Tyler. paw.
0: There Actually. was a paw
1: bass. Yes, 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 yes. Um, there's a lot, a lot of basses. I think... Yeah, Ron and Don, I think, started for... for Was it Phil Golden? Uh, and yeah, then uh,
0: Golden slash Goulas. Uh, at this point in time... Uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, Billy Golden.
1: Uh, okay, okay. I got my Goldens mixed up.
0: Um, uh, you might be right. Uh, Phil Phil was the one that had the big falling out with Goulis. Billy was the one who continued to work with Goulis through the mid-70s.
1: Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And I think that is where they were paired up with Maw for the first time. And in, in, in Mobile, I think, working for, I guess that'd be Lee Fields they were working for? In, like yeah, Mobile three. would
0: be, yeah, would be, Gulf Coast would be the, the Fields okay. family. Uh, it's, it's funny because yeah. growing up, growing up in the eighties, I knew of the wrestler named Ron Bass. I knew of the wrestler named Don Bass, but it wasn't until many years later that I learned that at one point they were Ron and Don Bass together. <laughs> but yeah, all these bass, i think there ends up being more Bass wrestlers than there were drummers for Spinal Tap.
1: It's uh, it's really it's interesting reading about them too. When you listen to people talk about them. And it's not like listening to people talk about other classic tag teams like you know, like Rip, Hop, Rip Rip Hawk, and and Sweet Hansen, and their and their quick tags or Gene and Lars Anderson and with the tag and blocks, you know, cutting off the ring as they later later refer to it. You don't hear stories about like the the Bass Brothers' clever and or dastardly in ring tactics. You hear the stories of like Ma Bass and the nuclear level of heat her <laughs> and her loaded purse had, and like one of the crazier stories I've read. Uh, it was told by one of the McGuire twins, oddly enough. I'm assuming Benny, because it was after the fact, in, in uh, Blakesville, Arkansas. And from what I gather from the story was that there was a ferry that a lot of the fans from Tennessee would take over the river into Arkansas to see the matches. Um, I don't think the Dyersburg Bridge or whatever was opened until later in the 70s. Um, so the McGuire twins were wrestling the Bass Boys, and Mob Bass was there. And according to the twins, the, the heels were catching all kind of heat that night. Uh, and he described the crowd as tough country folk and goes on to say that they sold beer at this venue. He makes 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 note of that, that they sold lots of beer at this venue. Also describes the building as all wood. <laughs> so you can see where I'm going with this. Um, such was the heat that the Bass Brothers and maw had this evening uh, that, according to McGuire, the fans lit the ring on fire, um, which is a huge problem, the ring being on fire, also the building being wood, huge problem. And according to Benny, they... They just had to make their own door to get, to get out of there. whole building was burnt down, according to him. Wow. I tried to find – this is an inf- investigation in progress. I tried to find some record of this specific event, and I wasn't able to. I did find evidence of a fire at the, the Blytheville American Legion Arena in late November of 73, and then – in December of seventy-three, there's an ad in the Blytheville Courier News that's soliciting invitations to bid on renovations and repair to the American Legion on North Second Street. I can't find any record of any wrestling happening at that arena until and the Bass Brothers wouldn't have been the Bass
0: Brothers were here at the time, so they wouldn't have been yeah. in Blytheville, which was a ghoulist town.
1: Uh, so something did happen there. I just whether or not it's related to the Bass Boys or Mall Bass or. Something, something happens. I'm just trying to keep this case open. This might be, yeah. this might be a good Bo James question. This, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll
0: have to dig into that. Uh, but talking about Ma Bass, you mentioned she, she was wrestler Mae Weston and even at the age mm. of 50 would still get in the ring. They would bring in Moolah for some six man tags in Gulf Coast uh, somewhere in the early 70s. So it would be the Bass Boys and Ma Bass against Moolah and Cowboy Bob Kelly and Ken Lucas or whoever. The baby faces were. But Mae Weston, real name Betty Garvey, has an interesting background, and this all comes from the great work of Scott Teal. But May was living in Leavenworth, Kansas as a child with two siblings when their mom passed away in 1931. Their grandmother wanted to raise them instead of their father, and the grandmother made an attempt to get custody of the three children. So their father packed up everything he could carry, and absconded with the kids in the middle of the night and took off to a small mining town in Missouri. A few years later, May actually made her way back to Leavenworth, only to find her grandmother no longer had interest in raising her. At the same time, her older sister had run off with the carnival to escape a bad marriage, hooking up with Billy Wolf and Mildred Burke. When said Carnival came back to Leavenworth, May joined up with her sister who wrestled as Wilma Gordon, as well as joined up with Wolf and, Burke, and ended up being trained to wrestle. Her earliest documented matches were in 1937 when she was just 14 years old. Now, John, you yeah. found some wow. really old articles and mentions of May Wesson. So talk
1: about that. Yeah, there's one. It's, it's, it's fascinating there's like the earliest clipping i found from her from like june 1937 you know and it's and it's her her may May weston and mildred burke and it's it's amazing a lot of these clippings how it's she's in the main it's the main event like the main attraction is, is them they're not you know they're not just the the, the attraction on the card like oh, here's the midgets and the girls this is the main event this is who's the pictures are of them huge pictures um and it's, it's it's really it's incredible to look at at these articles the photos of her, she looks like a small child like she looks like a little kid and i'm like oh my you can't imagine this woman in like working these like carnivals or these act shows or whatever like taking on all comers <laughs> women and men occasionally it's just it's it's just it's in it's insane um and she she's doing this for you know in, until her 50s um it's, it's incredible and like you talked earlier about her in in gulf coast uh with mula they are her and mula were doing like like double juice cage matches like when <laughs> when she's like pushing 50 years old it's absolutely absolutely insane the stuff she was doing um and there's I've found a little video footage of her and it is very impressive. It's like one of those, like, uh, like the newsreel clips, you know, so you have the newsreel sound kind of like the hokey newsreel music and the guy making sort of sexist comments about the female wrestlers, but it's such a solid, solid match. There's, there's just like random moments in the match where they're going back and forth with a, with a standing wrist lock. And it's like there, the amount of drama, uh, you know, Mildred Burke and Mae Weston are able to to gain from this standing rest wrist lock is incredible like the drama and the struggle on their faces and their body language is out of this world it's amazing um like I'm just, you just, today you're just used to seeing like the goofed shocky the goofed like goofy shocked faces from everybody and then they like, oh I can't believe I didn't get the pin you know don't make those faces look at Mae Weston and mildred Burke make those faces that is incredible 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 stuff Um, I, we have to post that match. I highly, highly recommend it.
0: Well, we'll post a link to that on my Twitter account at Al Gets Wrestling. Um, we couldn't find any footage of Ron, Don and Ma together, but from what I gather, Ma Bass played a role similar to Granny from the Beverly Hillbillies she was uh, she was the boss of the family. I think instead of carrying around a shotgun like Granny did, uh, her big thing was she would grab the ears of Ron and Don, uh, you yeah. know, <laughs> to, to get them to get them in line. Uh, and there's a great story written by Rock Riddle on Slam Wrestling, and he wrote it shortly after Ron had passed away, talking about his time on the road with Ron, Don, and Ma bass Mae Weston. So we'll post a link to that as well as some of the articles. John found there is uh, some YouTube footage of Ron and Don with paw bass later on in Gulf coast. And there is footage of Don Bass years later in the eighties when he uh, took on the persona of a singing cowboy in Memphis. Uh, And this is Don performing his heartwarming rendition of the Bobby bear classic drop kick me, Jesus. So John, (laughs) did Jesus have a good drop kick? I don't know. It's not, not as good as Jumbo Saruta, but pretty good. <laughs> so you're saying that Jesus couldn't throw a good dropkick, John. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. It was barefoot.
1: You know, you get the like Kevin Von Erich. You can get up there, you know? Okay. Yeah. he could get up there like the Von Erichs
0: could. I think, well, you know, the whole thing is, and this was something when I was working in indie wrestling, this was the thing I would tell uh, young wrestlers all the time. Uh, did you ever see Ric Flair throw a dropkick? kick? No. Or very rarely if ever. And why? Because he knew he didn't have a good drop kick, So he didn't do it. So if perhaps Jesus did not have a good dropkick, he wouldn't do it. So Don Bass could sing, dropkick me, Jesus, all he wanted. But if Jesus couldn't get the hang time, he wouldn't do it.
1: <laughs> have you heard, I hate to take this to a dark turn, not a dark turn, just a weird turn, after talking about uh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, have you heard that there are rumors that Don Bass and Ma Bass were, uh, romantically?
0: No. Oh, of course. but, but why wouldn't, why wouldn't that be, you know, a thing?
1: Yes. Yes. I, I was, you know, I was trying, I was trying to get, trying to get some, some good bass info and I was going deep and I was like, oh, that's not the kind of info I was, I was, I was hoping to find. You got a little but, too deep know? into the Bass family tree,
0: I guess. Well, Ugh. and Don. Yeah. So this is early in Don's career, but if I recall, he started late. So he might have been 30 in Mm -hmm. 1973, uh, or or very late 20s, I think. So it's not as horrible as it may sound, uh, if if it is true. And of course, who knows if it's true or not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the Bass Brothers, as well as the aforementioned Randy Tyler, were slotted as mid carters this quarter, based on our spot ratings, with a spot between .40 and 60. Some other interesting names in that category are Dan Crawford, who came in from Stampede, uh, Siegfried Stanka, Ron Starr, Pez Watley, and Mr. Clean, who was Ernie brute Bemis. But perhaps the most interesting name to be found in the lower half of the cards was a young rookie named Bob. Talking, of course, John, about Bob Backlund, It is believed these are his first professional matches. Now, he was trained by Eddie Sharkey, and there are some sources that say he wrestled a handful of matches for the AWA earlier in 1973. I haven't found any evidence of that. I do have a record of him being advertised for a show in Missouri for Central States where he's billed as Robert Blackland. But the results uh, don't list him, so he didn't appear for that card. But I believe that his matches, which I think started in early November in Louisiana, were his very first matches as a professional. And on a couple of occasions, they actually advertised him for open workouts prior to the matches, oh, yeah. where they would tell fans, bring your sneakers and your you know wrestling, wrestling shorts and get in the ring with Bob Backlund.
1: Yeah, he uh, Bob in his book, uh, he tells a story about uh, Grizzly Smith. Um, uh, not the kind of Grizzly Smith story you're used to hearing. So this is this isn't that that bad. He, he he he. A lot of the towns where they worked, where Grizzly was running running the show before the matches, they would have open challenge, the open challenge thing where the fans would challenge the wrestlers, and Grizzly would usually select Backlund, and Three or four other wrestlers who looked more intimidating than Bob, which is, let's face it, is not difficult. Um, and because Bob looked like the way he did, the clean cut baby face, all American boy, the fan choosing between the group of wrestlers would usually just pick Bob as the one, I, I can beat him. Um, you know, I want to wrestle him. And of course, Bob would just like manhandle them, eat them alive, much to the delight of Grizzly. Um, and it's interesting enough, like slowly, these little ex- exhibition workout things, whatever you want to call them, they start earning Bob like respect among you know the, the the boys in the locker room, and also importantly in in the office. Um, but it was his 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 time. He talks about his time in 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 this territory. It's it's rough. Like he was not making a lot of money. Like he went down there, you know, with like twenty bucks in his wallet, you know booked a room with the share and then after his first match with, I think his first match, he talks about it being with Ron Starr, uh, after surviving the match, you know, he gets an envelope, goes to his car, opens it and it's like $5 in the envelope. So he cancels the room with the share and buys some, buys a can opener or some tuna and goes to sleep in the trunk of his car <laughs> in the church parking lot. So it's like, luckily it lost from the inside. Um, those early days were, were rough, man. He had no address, no phone, sleeping in the car, showering at the gym. You know, one night in New Orleans, next night in Tulsa, it was freaking hard. Um, and, you know, politically, it was weird, too. This is why the, these matches, these open challenges sort of got him in with the office. Like, Bob talked about, it's very eloquently, the way he put it, uh, a diffusion of responsibility in the locker room at that time. Um, because... You know because Leroy was blind, he relied so heavily on others for information about who was who was supposed to be pushed, who was doing good, who was in trouble. So it was so challenging for him his first time in the business sort of like navigating that. So it was like he used these sort of like open workout challenges from the fans to sort of that's how he sort of worked his way up in his eyes of his peers and and his bosses. You know, and he, you know, he he talked about Eddie Sharkey, you know, something Eddie Sharkey always told him while he was training, like, you know, he's working at the territories is your real training camp. This is just this is just practice working the territories is your real training. So he did his best to take it all 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 in in stride. Um, But the more more most like fortuitous meeting he has during his time in this territory is when McGurk brings in Terry Funk for some main events. And he took a liking to Bob, uh, talked for a while in the locker room. Bob, at the time, didn't know that Terry and Dory ran the Amarillo Territory, but Terry gave Bob his number and said, hey, when you're ready to make a move, give me a call. Uh, and in a couple of weeks, even before Bob was planning on leaving, Ridley goes to Bob and tells him Terry's looking for someone to do jobs on Amarillo TV. And Bob is one of the guys that Terry wanted. So Bob heads to Amarillo where he would... You know, end up doing a lot more than jobs on TV for Terry, but, you know, it's another, another story, but that was really the beginning of, the end of the beginning of Bob's career and the start of new new exciting times for Bob, and it all, all happened right here in Tri-State.
0: Yeah, and Bob, of course, was a collegiate wrestling star, but he wasn't just a wrestler in college. Uh, And and earlier in his life, he was a multi-sport athlete. We've got some articles uh, talking about his exploits on the gridiron as a football player. We'll post post, uh, some of those up on Twitter. We also have some matches of his uh, in his pre-WWWF days. Uh, There's a match with uh, Gene Kaniski. There's a match with Harley Race. And there's a tag team match from Japan where Bob teamed with Bob. Bob Backlund and Bob <clears> Roop <throat> teamed up to face Giant Baba and the man who apparently has a drop kick better than Jesus, according to John Boucher, <laughs> Jumbo <Saruta.
1: laughs> A Nice drop kick. That, that's probably it's a really cool match. Um, it's it's some of the earliest Backlund footage that I've seen, and watching watching Backlund and Jumbo Serruda go at it in 1974 is, is pretty damn great. And seeing 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 Backlund like. You know, barely you know wet under the ears, trying to figure stuff out, having to like navigate how to work against giant Baba is is a, is fun to watch too because he's just like trying to grab a headlock and he's like, what the hell do I do with this guy? So it's very yeah fun.
0: And Saruda is slightly more experienced than Backlund, but not by much because Saruda debuted, I believe, it was May of '73 uh, in Amarillo. And Backlund, uh, his, his debut is in November. So Jumbo's only got six months on him. Yeah. So interesting to see the two of them working together along with the veteran Baba and uh, a, the more experienced Bob Roop. Uh, now, in yeah. addition to all of these spot ratings and stats, we also list full advertised lineups for all known house shows in the territory. Uh, in the first few weeks, of the fourth quarter of 1973, several towns that had been run regularly by Leonard Clay and his brother Bob are not on this list. The brothers Clay actually split ties very briefly with Leroy and began booking talent out of Georgia and Gunkel's All-South promotion, as a matter of fact. So, uh, it's interesting. I posted some of the lineups for these cards, and you know, we, we talk about A shows and B shows. Looking at the crew Ooh. that Ann Gunkel sent to work, uh, the Leonard and Bob Claytowns, this is a, a an E crew at best. The yeah. only thing close yeah. to a name is Bearcat Wilkerson and uh, the Golden Gladiator.
1: Yeah, um, I mean. Chief Little Eagle was a big name, you know, 15 years earlier in Atlanta. and But yeah, it's like it's it's obvious from and they make a point of this even in the in the in, in, in the articles you post. Like it really seems like the fans did not, you know, quote unquote, take to this Atlanta crew and and demanded their wrestling back. It reminded me of like when the WWF took over the TBS time slot and the backlash that they got. They reminded me of that. I'm like, we want our wrestling back.
0: (laughs) But here they ran for two weeks and then they ran ads for a third week. And at least two of the shows that third week were canceled. And it was announced that uh, Clay would go back to the NWA. Uh, And uh, one of them, we'll have the same stars we've been accustomed to in the past. So (laughs) uh, a brief experiment that didn't last long, but it's interesting to know that Ann Gunkel was trying to expand outside of Georgia. She was also running some shows in the Carolinas. Uh, I think there were some weekly shows in South Carolina, and they made a couple of attempts to run Charlotte in 1973 as well. Of course, by uh, the second half of 1974, or later in 74, Ann was out of business. But interesting to see that less than a year after splitting— from Georgia Championship Wrestling and was, was uh, thinking bigger than just the state of Georgia and was looking to expand uh, out west into the towns of Wichita Falls, Texas, Pine Bluff, Arkansas, Joplin, Missouri, and Marshall, Texas. So that finishes up our coverage of the fourth quarter of 1973. We're now going to spend a little bit of time talking about the fourth quarter of 1965 in the territory. Now, last month, we talked about how Don Kent seems to have had a lot of influence in the booking. If he wasn't actually the booker, he sure seemed to have some stroke as he moved up the cards to a level higher than he usually was slotted in. He's feuding with several top baby faces. He ends what was billed as an undefeated streak of Jack Briscoe in at least one town. And he and Anton Leone had been teaming up, but then they split up with Leone turning babyface and then Kent and Leone feuding. So further evidence supporting my Kent has stroke theory can be found in looking at this feud between Kent and Leone. They had 12 known matches in five different towns. And of the 11 matches we have results for, Kent, the heel, won nine of them.
1: No wonder Leone always has that look on his face. (laughs) No wonder he had heat with uh, seemingly every
0: promoter and uh, wrestler (laughs) in the NWA for years and years and (laughs) years. This could could be why. But you can see how this feud played out in the anatomy of a feud section of our blog post for this quarter on chartingtheterritories.com. The post also discusses the title histories and all known title changes during the quarter. There is one title change, however, that probably isn't a title change, unless it is. So this title change happened in Little Rock between Danny Hodge, the reigning NWA World Junior Heavyweight Champion, and Lorenzo Parente, And as best I can tell, whatever it was only applied to Little Rock. And it either was a title change with Hodge regaining the title Uh, in December, or it was a situation where the title was held up pending a series of rematches. I actually went through and looked at the wording of every single article in the Little Rock newspaper for all these shows. And honestly, it's not really clear. Sometimes Parente is billed as the champion. Sometimes it's billed as being held up. In the match where Parente won the title, he actually won one of the falls by disqualification. So even if he did win the title, he shouldn't have won it in the first place. It's all a whole big mess. And I really can't tell you whether or not Parente actually won the title. But even if he did... It only applied in Little Rock, and throughout every other town in the territory, Hodge is consistently billed as World Junior Heavyweight Champion, and Parente is consistently billed as not the champion. Does not billed as champion anywhere else, unless you think that I'm the only person who has taken umbrage with this title change. I'm not. <laughs> no, no, no. Back when it happened. Bert Ray mentioned it in both the January and February 1966 issues of his Mattmania Mania newsletter. Steve Ogilvy sent me a copy of the February newsletter and the January one is available online from Jason Campbell's ProWrestlingHistory.com. And Burt's take is similar to mine, that if there was a title change, it only applied to Little Rock. And in fact, a direct quote uh, is that Hodge, Lost a share of the title to Parente in Little Rock. Now, Lorenzo. I like the way that's worded. Yeah, a a share of the title, uh, as if you, uh, which is an interesting way of looking at it. Now, a lot of times we know uh, title changes repeated themselves in different towns across the loop, but this is one of those rare occasions where a title change is only mentioned in one town. But what's interesting is as we get into 1966, next month in the podcast, there are also some shenanigans with another title change, this time, Parente beating Hodge again, but in Oklahoma City, and winning the title and having it acknowledged throughout the territory. But again, there's some questions about it that we'll cover next month. Now, Parente, born in Italy, although not in the same town as Bruno. Um, but Lorenzo came to the U.S. and began his pro wrestling career in 1959, wrestling in various territories, uh, having this run here from McGurk and having a couple others later. He's probably best remembered in wrestling as one half of the Continental Warriors tag team with Canadian wrestler Bobby Hart. Bobby Hart is a member of a Hart wrestling family in Canada, but not the Hart wrestling family in Canada. His father, I believe, was uh, named Frankie Hart, was a professional wrestler as well. Now, between 1970 and 1973, the team of Parente and Hart won titles here uh, for Goulas in Amarillo and probably a couple of other places as well. Lorenzo eventually retired to Brentwood, Tennessee. Now, John, did you know anything about Brentwood? No, Nothing. Okay, Brentwood is about 10 miles outside of Nashville, and it's considered a snobby, rich people's suburb. Really? Yes. In fact, huh. when, when Debbie Combs worked as a heel for Music City Wrestling uh, for Burt Prentice in 1998, when I was working out there, she would purposely bill herself as being from Brentwood, Tennessee, to get a rise <laughs> out of the working-class oh, wow. Tennessee and wrestling fans. So oh, yeah, so great. that is Brentwood. Um, but briefly, John, tell us uh, when when Lorenzo retired from the ring. Tell us what business venture he got into in Brentwood, Tennessee.
1: He opened a a what lo- looks like appears to be a lovely Italian restaurant, Lorenzo's Italian Village. Stayed uh, open for almost twenty five years, I think. Uh, I think it moved locations a couple times in that in that general area, but are open. Uh, you know, from uh, I think it was 75, and I think it closed in 99. Um, and the damn chain restaurants moved in and killed them. Uh, it's interesting. In, in, in parentheses, uh, obit, or, or death announcement in The Observer, I was not aware of this, uh, Meltzer says that he was actually involved in the opening of the original Bartolino's restaurant in St. Louis, um, which is like, that's like the Italian place, in, in St. Louis, and all the wrestlers would go there. It's like the, uh, you know, it's like the the Ribera Steakhouse of uh, yeah, you know, 1960s St. Louis, St. Louis. <laughs> okay. um, I do, I hate to publicly doubt Dave Meltzer, but I'm wondering if that's true. Only I know, because
0: I know Parente wrestled regularly in St. Louis.
1: He did, and also speaking of matches, we got to post that. There's there's not a lot of Parente footage out there. Um. But there is one match from from St. Louis with uh, him versus Pat O'Connor with Joe Garagiola on commentary. That is just a a fan freaking tastic match. It uh, it's I think it's from like 19. What are the years that I got? I think it's 62. 62. 62. What a fantastic match! I really feel like you can have this match, like do this match exact, do this exact match. On TV today, and the match would get over. I think it's aged like really, really well. Uh, Kudos to both of these guys for having like, and it's a babyface versus babyface match that is very compelling, which seems also very the hard to do. Um, I love the match at the end of it. Joe Garagiola uh, puts gets put in some holds by Pat O'Connor, and they roll around on the floor of the of the studio. Really, really good. So check that Um, out. But
0: John, finish your thought about the restaurant story.
1: (laughs) Oh. The, yeah, it was one of the founders of Bartolino's, previously to opening Bartolino's, ran a place that was named Parente's. So I'm wondering if somehow, maybe Dave is just mistaking a restaurant named Parente's for Lorenzo Parente. Knowing that
0: Parente had I, a restaurant
1: I, later on. Restaurant later. Yes, I'm wondering. Yeah, so that's all. But these are the things that keep me up at night, sadly. Yeah. But, uh,
0: well, you talked about there isn't much footage of Lorenzo Parente's. However, there is more footage than there previously was, thanks to you, because you have <laughs> just uploaded like some more. footage of Parente in Luthes' UWA.
1: Yes, I have. Yes, I have. Uh, I think, yeah, I think I have three matches of his that are, and it's funny because if you look on Wikipedia, it says he was retired, um, but he was still working. <laughs> for well, Luthes
0: Tez UWA. Tez wasn't running for very long. Uh, and he wasn't yeah. running a full slate of shows, so he's probably semi-retired at that point.
1: Semi-retired, he and he looks he looks retired too.
0: <laughs> well, so he started in '59, so that would have been he would have been 17 years in if he started in his early to mid 20s. Yeah, he's uh, early 40s, and he's probably running and he's running a restaurant, so he's probably working crazy hours on top of that. Yeah. So yeah, I could I could see that showing.
1: I think I, I, someone on, on one of the old wrestling classic message boards was like, yeah, Parente was great in the ring. Promos were fine. His biggest downfall is that he looked like a green grocer. <laughs> <laughs> of all the comparisons to make, a green grocer. But uh,
0: Yeah, well, so Parente's in the territory. Uh, some of the other wrestlers... In the McGurk territory in the fourth quarter of 1965, uh, our main eventers, the only two wrestlers with a spot rating of .80 or higher, were both babyfaces, Danny Hodge and Mike Clancy. The upper mid-carders, on the heel side you have Don Kent, Lorenzo Parente, Don and Jim Fargo, Sputnik Monroe, The Great Bolo, Nikita Mulkovich, Jim Osborne, before he was Dr. X, and Kurt Steiger. While on the babyface side, you have Bill Watts, Joe McCarthy, Jerry Kozak, and Anton Ripper-Leone. Now McCarthy, who had turned babyface earlier in the year, actually turns heel in mid-December. Kent and Leone are both notably de-pushed, moving down the cards starting at the end of October. So again, going to our Kent has stroke theory, whatever he had, he seems to have lost it. Uh, by the end of October of 1965. But I mentioned Don Fargo. Don and his longtime partner, Jim Bogus, who at this point in time is now going as Jim Fargo, come into the territory. Uh, but for the first week, they're Jack and Jim Dalton. A week later... They changed it to Don and Jim Fargo, and there's not really a good explanation given. In the, uh, in the Springfield, Missouri newspaper, it says that since the Dalton brothers were famous for robbery and such, they, the wrestling Daltons, thought it gave them a bad name. So for whatever reason, they just decided to switch their name after a week, and then, and Don Fargo talks about this in his book, he mentions an incident where he and Jim nailed the clothes and shoes of four little persons to the ceiling while they were in the ring. Now, this would have been Pee Wee Lopez, Chico Santana, Dandy Verone, and Little Boy Blue, who came in for two weeks in late September. And just a couple of weeks after that, Don and Jim left the territory, with Don seeming to be somewhat surprised that it was because people were sick of their antics. Let's see, let's see. Yeah. He shows up with one ring name, then decides to change it a week later, then nails the little people's shoes to the ceiling while they're in the ring. Meanwhile, outside of the ring and outside of the arenas, he's probably getting into, you know, motorcycle gang initiations and gunfights at the OK Corral. So, yes, it's it's shocking that people would be sick of Don Fargo's (laughs) antics. But yet they always brought him back. And this is the Eddie Gilbert yeah. thing. Leave a territory with as much heat with the office as you can because they'll always remember you and they'll always want you back.
1: Yep, yeah. yep. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> At some point, I really want to make like a like a like like a, I don't even know, but the top 10, top 20, top 40, top 100, like all the Don Fargo stuff from most heinous to yeah. least offensive or reverse order, I don't know. Like, and what's I what's my favorite one yeah. is like,
0: he's so open about some of the crazy shit, like the motorcycle gang initiation with the one guy. Yeah. Um, and it makes me wonder, cause most wrestlers don't tell everything. And I, maybe Don did tell everything, but if he's willing to talk about those incidents, are there other things that he was unwilling to talk about that are even worse than that?
1: Uh, That's like the that.
0: thing I, I would love to
1: know. I like how you are like, this is my favorite of his and it's, he says it's his favorite, too. Um, I don't know why. I don't know what this says about me, but he would take – he would take he would do like the cigar and stick it in his butt uh, and then just be walking around with his cigar sticking out of his ass. And then he would be like, hey, guys, anybody seen my cigar? It's not where I left it. And he would just turn around and it would be like sticking <laughs> out of his ass. Um <laughs> I don't know why that cracks me up so much. Uh, I'm going to have trouble. (laughs) Because we are easily (laughs) amused, John, you and I. I'm eight years old. I'm eight years old.
0: (sighs) John, did you know I have an intern? Uh, No, tell me more. I have an intern. Uh, Actually, for the last several months, uh, one of our listeners has been hard at work helping me retrieve newspaper clippings From newspapers.com, which is one of the uh, searchable subscription aggregators that us researchers and historians use regularly. Um, Yeah, he's actually been helping me since the summer. And I decided uh, to do a brief little interview with him. So this was conducted a couple of weeks ago, but this is my intern, Sam Waldo. So I want our listeners to uh, get to hear his voice. And, and uh, in the interview, he and I talk about how, uh, how he re- initially reached out to me and uh, some of the things that he's been doing. So I'm going to play that interview for everybody right now. Al gets here with my intern. And we are going to reveal his identity to the public for the very first time. So, Charting the Territories listeners, please welcome uh, Sam to the podcast. How's it going, Sam? Good. How are you doing, Al? I'm doing fantastic. We're uh, recording this in mid-December, so I hope you have uh, uh, done enough good deeds uh, to be on the nice list this year. I know as far as from where I stand, you definitely earned a great present this year you were definitely on the nice list but santa will be coming in less than two weeks so hopefully you've got everything ready for him to visit
2: uh no uh, i'm never ready for santa to get here <laughs> well hopefully it's always a it's always a stressful time of the year with a uh, christmas coming around when you got kids and trying to figure out what to buy for two adult children it's not easy
0: Oh, that's tough. I know uh, my mom always dresses over to what to get me. Now, my sister, however, got me this amazingly horrible Christmas sweater. Uh, It's a picture of Santa uh, looking all buff and lifting weights. And it says, do you even gift, bro? (laughs) So I don't know if your kids would like something tacky
2: like that, but there's an idea. (laughs) No, uh, my, my, uh, my kids are pretty pretty easy to buy for i guess i can't complain well that's so, uh, good so it, 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 it could be worse
0: it could always be worse that's that's the way i like to look at life but sam let, let's uh tell us a little bit about yourself before we get into the how you and i linked up and how you became my intern
2: uh just tell our listeners
0: a little bit of your background
2: sure i was born and raised in a just outside chattanooga uh tennessee a little place called harrison uh I joined the Air Force straight out of high school, spent 20 years, retired in 2012 uh, out of the Air Force, uh, worked in the insurance game a little while after retired, decided that wasn't for me. I hated working in the cubicle, hated being in an office, and uh, I decided, you know, I might as well, you know, retire because after the Air Force, there was just, you know, Nothing to really, nothing to really excite me. You know, I didn't want to work in an office. I didn't want to, you know, whatever. So I, I went back to college, got my, uh, my bachelor's in Homeland Security and uh, pretty much live in the retired life, you know, trying to try to keep myself entertained during the days. So that's about it. Really. I got two, two kids. Uh, they're both grown. They live in Florida down in Tampa. Uh, other than that, nothing too, uh, nothing too exciting to tell. Well, uh,
0: allow me to say thank you for your service. And yeah, I can imagine after serving in the Air Force, uh, sitting in a cubicle in the middle of an office probably doesn't have oh, it the was, same cachet.
2: Well, oh, it, it was it was terrible. I, I made it two years, and uh, I about developed an ulcer. I, I couldn't do it dealing with dealing with customers demanding their money. And I, I worked in uh, the the insurance I worked in was was a uh, disability insurance. So anytime you're, you were talking to somebody, it was because they wanted to, you know, they, they wanted a check, where's my check? Anytime you deal with people's money, it's not, uh, you know, it's not fine. No, nobody wants to, nobody wants to not have their checks come, you know? Of course. And, and you're in a position where
0: you personally aren't the bad guy. You're not the person holding up their payment, exactly. but you're the person exactly. relaying that message to them. Exactly. And that's got to be very difficult.
2: I think the expression, don't shoot the messenger came from somebody working in the insurance game. (laughs) Very well could be. So Sam, back
0: in June, I received a message, a a direct message on Twitter from you, where you pretty much offered up your services. Uh, You were listening to the podcast and you had, uh, since you mentioned you're retired, so you had free time. You had a a subscription to newspapers.com, one of the online searchable archive sites, and you wanted to help. And and I'm gonna say, Sam, you are not the first person that has privately offered to assist. But usually when I tell people what I want them to do, which is very boring and tedious work, they tend to sort of say, Oh, you know what? Never mind. You <laughs> Did not you? I don't know if you were wearing a, a long sleeve shirt at the time, but you literally rolled up your sleeves and said, "Let's do this. Let's get to work."
2: Well, boring and tedious is, is my middle name, so uh, uh, that 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 was right down my alley. No, no, seriously, listening to your podcast—that's uh, where it started. Uh, the, the the first few episodes I listened to, it, it piqued my it piqued my interest. What you were doing. And I've always I've always enjoyed research, and that that was always always my favorite part of being in school. You know, I didn't like writing papers. I hated writing research papers, but I like doing research. You know, I don't like the writing, but I like the research. So I I'd had my my newspaper.com uh, subscription for a while. Never used it. Never knew how to use it. I was like, you know, I would. It, it was there was such a vast, you know resource there but I didn't know how to use it or what I wanted to do. I heard your podcast. I was like and it piqued my interest. I was like researching old pro wrestling. That's right down my alley because I enjoy research and I love old pro wrestling. So, I mean, it was it was uh a match made
0: in, in heaven, I guess. A match made in heaven indeed. So, uh what I want our listeners to know is that so this uh was in June of 2021. We're now in December. Uh, Over the, the span of the last several months, Sam has literally retrieved thousands and thousands of clippings and articles and ads and whatnot from newspapers, not just from the McGurk territory, but for numerous other territories as well, mostly in the south. While the blog currently doesn't focus on results so much, that's because I had spent so much time getting the ads and everything else. I didn't focus on the results. but now, thanks to the work of Sam, things like that are going to start showing up more often in the work that I do on the blog so Sam seriously your your help has been invaluable. I know you spent a lot of time and a lot of man hours on this over the last six months. And I'm so glad you took the time to reach out to me. And I just want to say in front of all our listeners, Sam, thank you very much for everything you've done for charting the territories.
2: Seriously, believe me when I say it, it's been my pleasure. Uh, I've enjoyed it. Uh, I've kind of been uh, going through withdrawals since we haven't had any to do lately. Uh, you did it. you know, were too
0: good at your job. you were too efficient.
2: Right. right. <laughs> exactly. I, I need to learn to need to learn to slow down to give myself some job security but uh but no i i, I enjoyed it uh, i hope to be able to do more in the future uh it was uh you know i, I learned a lot you know i uh, going through those old articles and finding bits and pieces here and there you know stuff i hadn't seen before that's 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 exciting for me it it, it, it pays for itself it really does
0: yeah, and that leads us into uh, what we're going to talk about next. I asked you, um, since we had run out of things to to do in you know the southern part of the U.S., I sort of asked you to pick a territory and pick a time frame, and we would go ahead and uh, gather up all the data, all the records, and then I would go ahead and chart it. So, Sam, what territory and time frame did you choose?
2: I believe I chose, what was it, the fourth quarter of 1974 and 1973? 1974. Uh, San Francisco. Yes. San Francisco. And that kind of
0: surprised me. I, ha, I kind of expected you to pick, a, you grew up in Chattanooga and you still live in Chattanooga. Uh, and listeners, Sam and I actually met earlier this year in August when I was in Chattanooga for my friends that run the Scenic City Invitational Wrestling Tournament and uh, made arrangements to meet Sam for dinner one night while I was there. So we have broken bread together. Uh, but yeah. I was expecting you to pick, uh, you know, something from your childhood or, you know, a territory that you remember. But you actually picked a territory you weren't familiar with. Is that correct?
2: That That is correct. Uh, you know, I, I started – to pick, you know, maybe something gulas related or, you know, Memphis or whatever. But I do know that it's hard to find archives here in Chattanooga. They're they're not easy to to find online. So that that was one thing that played into my into my thinking. I would love to do deep research on, you know, the ghoulist territory around here, Chattanooga, uh, Birmingham and and all of that. But it is Chattanooga, the it seems like the papers around here are pretty selfish. They don't put their stuff online unless you get their own, their subscription so so I knew I couldn't find a lot of stuff around here San Francisco is a territory I know zero about I've never looked into it I'm only thing I knew about San Francisco was Pat Patterson and, and, and Ray Stevens and that was it so it, it piqued my interest I, I didn't have any knowledge of it so I figure if we're if I'm going to do this why not learn something in the process
0: and that's great because really that's the whole point of charting the territories. There are a lot of websites, books, blogs and podcasts dedicated to, you know, rehashing things that we all that we remember. And what I've tried to do with charting the territories is look at a territory like the McGurk territory which before mid South in 1979 there just really isn't a whole lot of info out there about this territory and, of course, focusing on a time period that isn't as popular and isn't hasn't been as well documented. So the fact that you chose a, a territory because you wanted to learn something new, that you're exactly the type of person I hope you know, is listening to this podcast, people that want to learn something new. So I'm going to put you on the spot. I don't know how much you remember from when you were pulling stuff from San Francisco, but uh, aside from Pat Patterson, do you remember any names that jumped out to you as you were looking at these ads from the fourth quarter of 1974?
2: Sure. There were actually uh, two of the names that I used for my, my keyword searches to uh, to look for the results. And that's uh, Raul Mata and High Chief Peter via which is The Rock's
0: grandfather. Yeah, The Rock's grandfather. And Raul Mata is someone who is just one of those guys that wrestled in many different territories. He had some good runs where he was at the top of the cards, but a lot of times he was just a a, a sort of guy that was there. He had a great career, uh, wrestled in Florida, wrestled, I think, in Texas a lot, wrestled in Northern California. So, yeah, so John and I, uh, shortly, uh, in a little bit, we're going to chart... Uh, Northern California in the fourth quarter of 1974 And reveal the results But I just wanted to take the time to once again Thank you for your assistance, and thank you for uh, giving us a new territory, because I also wasn't that familiar with Northern California. Of course, just like you, I knew about Patterson and Stevens and Rocky Johnson and Peter Mayavia, of course, Rocky's father. But there were so many other names that popped up in 1974 that I wasn't expecting to see. So it, it's like a fun little surprise. It's, a, it's mini Christmas presents. Uh, All around. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Once again, Sam, thanks for all your hard work and happy holidays to you and yours.
2: All right. You as well. Thanks, Al.
0: All right. So that was the official Charting the Territories intern, Sam Waldo. And as you heard in the interview, I asked him to pick a territory to chart, and he chose the fourth quarter of 1974 in Northern California. So we're going to post the results with the spot ratings and all the other stats on the blog. But what's interesting is the Northern California territory is different than most other territories at the time. They had a much smaller crew than the other territories. And as best as I can tell, in 1974, they did not run split crews. So they just ran one show a night with uh, everybody on the roster or most of the people on the roster booked on that one show. The other major difference is that a large number of shows had six-man tags as the main event. So if you don't have a lot of wrestlers on the roster to begin with, and six of them are in the main event each night, a couple of things will likely happen with the spot ratings. You'll have more wrestlers with a very high spot rating, since six of them are wrestling in a main event almost every night. And you'll have a situation where instead of seeing one particular wrestler feuding with another particular wrestler, you have a situation where all the top babyfaces are wrestling regularly against all the top heels frequently. You don't see a clear-cut feud between two wrestlers. So now, based on my research, there were only 17 full-timers In this territory, and this, of course, is Roy Shire's big-time wrestling. I call it Northern California. I tend to use geographic terms instead of the trade name of the company. Um, But there are 17 full-timers in the territory. Now, to compare, there were 38 full-timers in the McGurk territory in the fourth quarter of 1973 and 23 full-timers for McGurk in 1965. And if you really want to get crazy, Mid-Atlantic had 48 full-time wrestlers in the fourth quarter of 1973, and they're running a a solid three shows a night, most nights of the week. So big-time wrestling is a small territory. It's called big-time, but it's a small territory (laughs) compared to others. And more than a third of the crew would have been considered main eventers. Looking at our spot ratings. Six out of the 17 had a spot rating of 0.80 or above. Now, one of them... Was Haystack Calhoun, who isn't really a full timer, but he's there for a month. The others were Babyface's Pat Patterson, Peter Mayavilla, and Raúl Mada, and Heels Carl von Brauner and Moon Dog Maine. Carl is here with Kurt von Brauner, and they're managed by Gerhard Kaiser. But Carl is definitely booked higher on the cards than Kurt von Brauner at this time. But the guy I want to talk about, and I'm so glad that Sam chose this territory, because uh, one of the wrestlers who really deserves a lot of uh, attention, uh, who never worked for Leroy McGurk, was Lonnie Moondog, Maine. So, of course, John, you found some great YouTube footage. There's a match from Northern California, from the Cow Palace, in fact, with Moondog versus Pat Patterson with peter maivia as special referee there's also a tribute video compiled by rock rims plus a match from the wwf with moondog main versus pedro morales and of course a clip of moondog eating glass from portland (laughs) tv now this clip this is great first off it starts with a tom peterson commercial So it's already, you know, got that Portland vibe to it. And then from there, they have that letter board with the plastic letters listing all the house shows for the week like they used to do every week. And when Moondog Maine is out there eating glass, standing next to him is a wrestler we talked about earlier in this podcast, Ron Bass. And Ron is here as Sam Oliver Bass, I guess because that way his initials are SOB.
1: They would chant, yeah, S O V, S O V. S.O.B. S-O-B.
0: <laughs> but Moondog is uh, eating glass during this interview, and it's as as batshit crazy as you would think. But then it gets even crazier oh, yeah. because the interview is interrupted by an absolutely bloody disgusting Buddy Rose and Ed oh, Wiskowski. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Buddy, oh, yeah. uh, there he there's like... no red X over buddy like like when blackjack mulligan was in the wwwf he is no. an absolute bloody disgusting <laughs> disgrace and they just show it all on tv and it's just fucking yeah. glorious <laughs> yeah
1: it's fantastic uh it yeah that and it's even even moon dog it's like i when i first first time i saw him i think was also in ring, first time I saw him was similar to this Pat Patterson footage where it was like that sixteen millimeter, eight millimeter silent footage. Um and you know, he reminded me at first he reminded me of like Georgie and Almost Steel, you know, he's eating a turnbuckle, he's doing the wild man sort of thing. But there's so much more to him. Uh like the like the the way he, he the way he works, the way he takes bumps, his psychology. Like if you can if, if I can just watch a cold match with you know, no sound, grainy, eight millimeter footage. And I'm, I'm absorbed into it. You've, you've done your job uh, as far as wrestling psychology goes. It is, is is i am concerned. It's like, he's very, you know, he, you know, he, the bumps he would take, I think it was like Don Morocco talked about him. And it's like uh, the first time he saw Mick Foley doing Mick Foley stuff. He's like, Oh, that's what, that's what Moondog Main used to do. Yeah, I've heard that comparison he many,
0: about, many times.
1: Yeah, and he talks about like seeing mankind take the bump off like the hell in a cell. And he's like, oh, yeah, Lonnie, Lonnie would have taken that bump if he could. <laughs> it's like, there's, there's a story. I think uh, the old referee Bobby Simmons told it. I think it was on an old, old episode of the 605 show um, the, right before Christmas. So it's perfect. Um, and uh, the timing is great for our show. Uh, it's in Georgia, probably December 75, it has to be. So they do do Columbus TV. Lonnie Mayne is fine. Uh, the main event later that night, uh, Moondog versus Dick Slater. Uh, I think it was Carlton or maybe Athens, I forget. But when they get there, get to the arena that evening, Lonnie is like shithoused, knee-wobbly drunk, can barely stand up. Um, so they get to the ring for the main event. Bobby's the ref. And Dick Slater says to him, like, hey, can, can, can Lonnie work? And is like, I, I, I don't know. I really don't know. <laughs> so the bell rings, and he just he just becomes Moondog main, and everything is fine. Like, he's just totally normal. The match is going perfectly well. It's like it's like a, fl- a switch got flipped, and he's able to, to work perfectly. Um, so the finish of the match was supposed to be Lonnie going to slam Slater, go to the top rope, and come off with an elbow or a knee or whatever, Miss Slater makes comeback, gets the pin, but Lonnie climbs up to the top rope, falls straight backwards onto the ring floor, like Ooh. flat, like it was like a, it was like in slow motion. His knees never bent. He just, I like, think, Ronnie or Bobby describes him as just falling like a tree. <laughs> Simmons walks over to Slater, and Slater's like, "He's dead." <laughs> Simmons is like, "I don't know. He might be." And he's like, sort of dreading walking over there. And he's scared of what he's gonna see. So he inches way over to the outside of the ring, you know. So the, the, the apron, and he sees he sees Lonnie lying on the floor, like laughing hysterically. And he looks at and, and he says, he looks at Bobby and says, "Bobby, would you count me out, please?" <laughs> 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 so Bobby just gives him a ten count, turns around, raises Slater's hand, and everyone goes home for Christmas. Which is like my my favorite crazy Lonnie Maine bump story.
0: Is, yeah, there's there's a lot of crazy <laughs> stories about Maine, now, you know. We, oh, often, yeah. we often plug articles written on uh, slam wrestling because of the honest, professional, and straightforward approach they generally take to pro wrestling and pro wrestlers. However, if we want the wilder side of things, my go-to site is prowrestlingstories.com. And they have an article on Maine written by uh, Javier Ost, O-J-S-T. We'll post a link to that. There's also a great article from one of the wrestling uh, newsstand magazines, the fall 1977 issue of Wrestling Annual titled, Even His Partners Think Moondog Maine's Insane. And we'll post some uh, screenshots of that article. But one of the things I wanted to do when I researched this was to see the etymology of of the word Moondog, because it shows up in various forms in pop culture going back years. Uh, There's, um, I think, a character, I I don't know if it was Gidget, but one of those types of movies or TV shows, there was a character named Moondog. It just seems to randomly pop up in all these places. But as far as how it made its way into pro wrestling, there is a story that, of course, may or may not be true, But uh, it would have come by the way of a blind avant-garde musician slash street performer named Louis Thomas Harden, who is known professionally as Moondog. As the story goes, Moondog, and this part is true, Moondog was living in New York from uh, from the 50s to the early 1970s and would regularly walk around Manhattan wearing a cloak and a Viking helmet. Sometimes he would busk, sometimes he would read poetry, sometimes he would walk around, and sometimes he would just stand there. When Lonnie Main came to the WWF at the beginning of 1973, Vince McMahon Sr. noted his resemblance to this street performer, uh, Moondog. And of course, if this guy was, you know, around Manhattan, then Vince probably would have, you know, encountered him, uh, you know, at some point in time, you know— uh, uh, in New York. So he may, you know, this, this may have some truth to it, that Vince Senior would have known who Moondog was. And he says to Lonnie Maine, you look like this uh, famous uh, street performer dude. So we're going to call you Moondog Maine. So John, do you know anything more about that aspect of this story? And if it's true or not?
1: I don't know if it's true or not. But you know, I people, I'm sure people will say, like, oh, how would Vince McMahon Sr. be familiar with the avant-garde experimental jazz scene of the early 70s? Well, he wasn't. Uh, like, Moondog. Yeah, he wasn't. But Moondog was such a fixture in New York, like, on the on the streets of New York from, you know, the late 40s to the early 70s. Like, he was just, like, a, a, a public figure, almost, in New York City.
0: Yeah, he was and known like he said, as the normally, Viking of 6th Street.
1: Yeah, he would normally camp out around like 53rd street 54th street and 6th avenue and the Capitol wrestling offices were at the holland hotel which was on 42nd and 8th so it's not that far away from this is the same like you know hell's kitchen and you know the west side it's not you know it's not not a stretch that he could have either you know seen him but definitely have been have been aware of him so yeah i uh i'm leaning to this being even more true than than false
0: it, you know, that's how a lot of wrestlers got their names. You look like so-and-so. You look like somebody in this and that. So it's definitely plausible and uh, and p- possible. Uh, so there you go, the Viking of Sixth Street. Now, most of the passers-by just thought he was some rando nut bar. They didn't really know about his career as a musician. But he was a self-taught composer, theoretician, poet, and inventor of several musical instruments according to the encyclopedia of popular popular music harden came up with the name moon dog in honor of a dog who used to howl at the moon more than any dog i knew of and that's a direct <laughs> quote from moon dog um i had not heard of him until looking into this but i listened to some of his music and it's uh, it's it's definitely avant garde. It's out there. He plays a lot with time structure. He doesn't do much in 4 4 time. Um, it's said that Philip Glass was heavily influenced by him. Um, but, John, you probably know more about this genre of music than I. So, what can you tell us about the musician slash composer, Moondog?
1: He's very, he's very like, his, his stuff varies wildly. You know, he's recording. Uh, he was active since the, the the 40s i think his recording career didn't start until sometime in the 50s but it varies wildly from from release to release record to record not even not even over the course of the career just one record will sound more traditional one record is more experimental i think he get a weird uh record with like uh like a spoken word sort of record with julie andrews at one point there's a lot, just a lot going on, um, and like you said, he didn't do a lot of stuff in like straight, straight time signatures, and like he 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 worked in what he would call, uh, I think he called it like snake time or something, <laughs> which was just like his own like weird little way to describe the the odd time signatures he would use. Fascinating, fascinating guy, and if you're if you're into the weird, weird jazz, weird jazz stuff, you know, he's he's sort of like a guy that doesn't sound like Miles Davis, but has the 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 varied career of someone like Miles Davis, where yeah, you have and, and you a have lot the, of this,
0: some of the songs I've heard, I wouldn't even call them strange. They're just they don't conform to the standard song structures that we're used to, which of no. course is typical for jazz, uh, you know, and, and and that type of stuff. But a lot of it stuff is is. Pretty basic music, and it's good music. And then, like you said, and then he would, you know, diverge into weird territories with the with the follow up record, and he would veer uh, in all sorts of weird directions.
1: I think at some point too, you you're talking about the etymology of of, of the of the word moon dog. I think at some point in the fifties, I believe he su- sued and successfully won a lawsuit against Alan Freed. Yes the the old rock and roll DJ for using the term like the Moon Dog show or something he'd say hey hey there that's mine and I think he I think he was uh, uh, successful in
0: yeah he won that lawsuit uh, I don't think there was any money but he just got uh, freed to uh, be unable to continue using the name Moon Dog mm-hmm. in his radio show at the time so yeah the Moon Moon Dog and that is how Moon Dog Maine may have gotten his name. And Moondog Maine was the first wrestling Moondog. Of course, there were several others that followed later on. But this Moondog Maine was in Northern California in the late 1974. Another thing to note about this territory is that we have a much smaller number of house shows in our records. Now, of course, one reason for this is they were only running one show a night as opposed to the two or three that most other territories are running. But we also seem to have incomplete data, much more so than most of the other territories I've charted. In fact, for this 13-week period, I only have 38 house shows for the territory. And keep in mind, my records consist not just of what I can find, but what else is out there on sites like Wrestling Data, Cage Match, and any other source of wrestling results I can get my hands on. So this 38 house shows represents the entirety of the collective uh, historical record, At this point, I actually asked Rock Rims a few months ago if he knew of any other towns that Shire may have run besides what we already had in our records, and he couldn't come up with any other towns. So it's possible that they didn't run six, seven nights a week like most territories did. Um, I know the AWA did not run a full slate each and every week. They would sort of do maybe, you know, 17 days on and then a week or so off and and do it that way. Um, And sometimes it would just be a four show a week territory, this and that. So the problem is we don't know what we don't know to quote Donald Rumsfeld, something I talked about many (laughs) months ago on this podcast. We can't prove that they were running other shows other than, Why would a guy go to this territory if they weren't, you know, making as much money as they would working seven nights a week somewhere else? So if they weren't running regularly, I guess they were paying very well because they had a smaller crew and they made it worthwhile. But looking at the roster, besides the main eventers who we mentioned earlier, the upper mid carters are babyface Earl Maynard and heels Kurt Von Brauner and Mr. Saito. The mid-carters are Babyface's Mr. Wrestling, and this is Tim Woods, and Reno Tefuli, who's a member of the other Samoan wrestling family, oh, yeah. uh, also including Teo and Tapu. On the heel side, you have Kenji Shiboya, the Alaskan, The Brute, who's Bugsy McGraw, and Ricky Hunter. And on the prelims, in the prelims, you have Babyface Billy White Cloud and Heel Killer Kirk who is, I forget if he's British, uh, I forget if he's from England or Scotland, but Malcolm Kirk, also known as Mal Kirk, was wrestling here as Killer Kirk. And he's someone who's I'd never heard of until I started really drilling into a lot of these different territories, because he never worked for McGurk. He never worked in the, in the South or Southeast, but he spent a lot of time in Stampede. Hmm. Uh, do you, are you familiar with Mal Kirk, Malcolm Kirk? No, I don't okay. I don't think I am. Well there you go. So you learned something new. I did.
1: That's my okay. My but hopefully it's not
0: hopefully of. it's not the only <laughs> new thing you learn because that brings <laughs> us to our monthly segment called This Month I Learned, where each month both John and I name one new thing we learned this month. So John, aside from learning of a wrestler named Mal Kirk, what did you learn this month?
1: Well I thought this was interesting and once again proves that no matter what it is I am reading about or researching, learning about, I will, without fail, find some connection to professional wrestling. Uh, A few weeks ago, I I was talking to my dad about the uh, Mianus River bridge collapse on I-95 in Connecticut, as father and son often do. Talk about bridge collapses. Uh, This was on the early morning of June 28th, 1983 shortly after midnight, I think. Uh, on the night of June 27th, my dad went to go see the Yankees play the Orioles at Yankee Stadium. Extra inning game, went like 10, 11 innings, I think, Yankees won. So my dad made it back home to Connecticut safely before the bridge collapsed, which I think ended up killing like three people. What? But my dad my dad loved telling the story because it involves the Yankees and this brush with fate. You know? uh, so being because I am the way I am, I, I got into looking in... Uh, Other historic bridge collapses in the state of Connecticut, and I found that there was a bridge collapse in Hartford, Connecticut on December 4th, 1941, three days before Pearl Harbor. Hmm. Uh, It was the Charter Oak Bridge in Hartford, Connecticut, which was under construction at the time. Uh, Apparently, there was a cause of it. There was a temporary support structure that was unstable because of the – they call it a varved clay Uh, unstable clay at the bottom of the Connecticut River Uh, and 16 men fell to their deaths in the icy Connecticut River uh, that fateful day and another 16 were pulled from the river and saved by fellow workers, firefighters, and policemen. And as reported in the December 5th, 1941 edition of the Hartford Current, one of the first policemen to arrive after being summoned was Fred T. Corey, better known to us wrestling fans as Wild Bull Curry. Um, so I guess this was like a maybe two, maybe threefold this month I learned, because one, I did not know about the Hartford Bridge collapse. Two, I did not know that Wild Bull Curry was on the scene in a police rescue mission capacity. And three, I did not know that he continued working as a police officer after his wrestling career was established. You know, I found clippings of him arresting guys for, you know, causing trouble at the local bowling alley until like 1944, which was like years after he, you know, boxed Jack Dempsey in Detroit. I had always thought that once he, you know, uh, you know, to paraphrase Paul McCartney, quit the police department, uh, you know, apparently he, he he was there moonlighting for a while. You know, I had no idea he was doing wrestling and uh, and being a copper. For, and or, and there was a Bull Curry
0: shows there. up on that UWA footage you have, right? Yes, yes,
1: he does. Yes, he's 60, 63, I think he is there. Yeah. Wow.
0: <laughs> All right, so there you go. So John learned something that wasn't about pro wrestling, but then ended up being about pro wrestling. And what happened. And my this month I learned is actually about baseball, but there is a wrestling connection. So John, at the beginning of this podcast, we told our listeners about you and I meeting in person in real life. You're not the only person I know through wrestling that I actually met in person since our last podcast. Uh, The week of Thanksgiving, I actually met up with Greg Klein. Greg is the author of The King of New Orleans, How the Junkyard Dog Became Professional Wrestling's First Black Superstar. And Greg was in the area for the holidays. I believe his wife is originally from uh, Georgia. So we met up in Marietta to have a drink and talk about some wrestling. And I got a copy of his new book, which is called Paper Tigers. Huh. And Paper Tigers is the fascinating true story of baseball's first ever strike, albeit an unofficial one. When Ty Cobb was suspended for going into the crowd in the middle of a game and beating the shit out of a heckling fan, he was oh, yeah. suspended and his teammates decided to walk out as an act of solidarity, and thus the entire Detroit Tiger baseball team went on strike. The Tigers' manager, Huey Jennings, was told by the uh, baseball commissioner, whose name I believe was Ban Johnson, that if the Tigers didn't play, if they missed a game, they'd be fined $5,000. So Jennings was forced to field a team of semi pros and amateurs cobbled together on one day's notice in 1912 where they lost to the reigning world champions, Connie max athletics, a 20 year old seminary student named Alan Travers ended up pitching that day for the tigers, giving up 24 runs in what stands as the all time record for most earned runs allowed by one pitcher in one game. Travers was later ordained as a Catholic priest in 1926. And to this day, He is the only Catholic priest ever to have played Major League Baseball, even just for one day. The story is even more fascinating because one of the amateurs brought into this team is involved in another baseball scandal a few years later, the Black Sox scandal, where he's alleged to have been a bag man. So it's a wild story, and it's all true, and it's all in written form in the book Paper Tiger's. By Greg Klein. So if you're interested in learning more about this tale, look up that book. It's available on Amazon and wherever you get your books. Had you heard that story before, John?
1: I I heard the, the the I'm familiar with the Ty Cobb part of the story, like him going into the stands and being a maniac and like beating a guy with his own cleats. Yeah,
0: and the guy um, was, and and I, the fan was handicapped by. It. Let's let's be clear. He also had. I think he only had two yeah. fingers. He had lost them in a yeah. in a in a work accident.
1: There is a lot going on there. With I up for a while. Um, I but I didn't know the rest of that story. Wow. So yeah. I, I I will be I will be asking for this book for uh for whatever the next holiday is but, that I can ask for a book for, for, for. the
0: next special <laughs> occasion that is a uh, book. <laughs> whatever that this might. Be.
1: Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day. Day. Yeah, here's a book. Yeah. I love you.
0: now now don't bother me and go read your book go in the other room now before we wrap up I want to mention that going forward we're going to stick with the 70s and 60s Uh, over the last year and a half we have touched on the periods of 1980 and 1981 and as we got to the end of 1981 a couple of months ago we ended right where the uh, WWE Network or Peacock has the Mid-South TV episodes So because of this, there's just a lot of great resources and recaps of the territory from 1982 forward. And there's a lot written in general about those peak Mid-South years. So we're going to shift our focus solely on the 60s and 70s. Uh, going forward. But as I mentioned, in addition to covering Northern California, we're going to look at uncharted territories from time to time. I've, I've looked at so many territories. Uh, thanks to my intern, Sam, we've got a lot of records of a lot of house shows for a lot of territories, and we're slowly going to be releasing bits and pieces of that over the next couple of years, but we're going to be focusing on the McGurk territory, um, We started, you know, all the way back in 1959 where Hodge debuted. We finished 1965 this month. So we're going to go forward. And next month on the podcast, we're going to talk about the first quarter of 1966, which featured a huge tag team feud and a weird title change that definitely was a title change, but still has some unusual circumstances surrounding it. And just like this month, we're gonna see what Bert Ray had to say about it at the time because he actually wrote several articles uh, about this title change. So we're gonna find out what say Bert Ray. <laughs> uh, and <laughs> as funny. we talked about, we mentioned so many articles and website links and YouTube clips. I'm going to put all of these up on Twitter over the the week or so after this podcast comes out. So be sure to follow me on Twitter at Al Gets Wrestling. I'll also, be sure to listen to the latest episode of Wrestling History Mysteries, where we unmask Mr. Zabo and reveal his identity yeah. to the world for the first time ever. And in early January, I'm going to re- be releasing a new podcast called Stats 101. This is a new episode of my Stats 101 podcast, where we will mm-hmm. talk about some of the changes I've alluded to that we're going to be making to how we present our data each and every month. So John, if our listeners want to find those, that amazing UWA footage of a 66 year old bull curry and a (laughs) semi-retired green grocer, Lorenzo Parente, where can they find it? And where can they find
1: you? Oh, we're such salesmen. Uh, I am on Twitter at, uh, at J O N underscore B O U C H E R. Follow me there. Uh, You can find my YouTube page via that and i I post links to those pretty often uh also uh, late last month after we did our show i I did a guest spot on the old school wrestling podcast last month where we talked even more about thunderbolt patterson i think it's episode 40 on their on their patreon page you can get access to that for like less than a dollar if you want so if you want to hear more of me for whatever reason go over there and, and find me there as well that's the old school wrestling podcast. And that
0: his on Twitter, that is he's black cat something, right? Yeah. Do yeah. you know? Hold on one sec. Let's let, let me, let me give our listeners, you know, something better than that. Let me just, don't just say, look for yeah, black thing. cat something. I believe. Yeah, oh yeah. Be it's head at, head well. at black cat. O S W P, which I'm assuming is yes. short for old school wrestling podcast. podcast. Yeah. So check that out. If you want to hear more of John talking about Thunderbolt Patterson. Our blog, chartingtheterritories.com, is updated at least twice a month, and usually more, and new podcasts are released on the second and fourth Thursday of each month. To be the first to know when new podcast episodes are available, subscribe now wherever you find your favorite podcasts and at chartingtheterritories.com. Happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and a happy new year to all of our listeners from both John and I here at Charting the Territories.
1: Yes, happy holidays, everybody, and we'll see you in January.